This is FemPower Health. Each week, top women's health experts dispel fact from fiction. The most important pelvic floor exercise is not the Kegel. Challenge the status quo. It's never easy to challenge the accepted leaders, and especially if you're a woman. Provide perspective on why your healthcare journey may be so tough. All of that fear and worry, it all upregulates our nervous system, puts us into fight or flight mode, and increases our pain sensitivity. And what you can do about it. The number one thing is you have to advocate for yourself, and you have to be prepared. Your journey to get empowered starts now. Chronic UTIs can have a similar pain cycle to what happens with painful sex, where maybe there's an initial trigger that, you know, it's an infection, it's a um, a trauma, you know, something that creates that initial painful penetration. But then your muscles and your brain create this pain response cycle where you're actually developing pain preventatively in advance of penetration. Welcome to FemPower Health, Georgie here. According to a recent study that looked at 25,000 women, it found that at least 32% have a pelvic floor disorder. It is actually estimated in other data that over 40 million women in the US alone have a pelvic floor disorder at some point in their life. However, there's only about 5,000 providers with expertise to support this. So I am pleased to bring to you Kareen Carmi, who is the co-founder of Origin, which offers virtual and in-person visits for pregnancy, postpartum, sexual health, and menopause. And we are here today to be educated on what good pelvic floor function is because so much of women's health is normalized and we aren't taught enough about our bodies. If something is going wrong, how do we know what that might be? And so we talk about what you should be expecting as you age with your pelvic floor and how best to be proactive. And if you are interested in going into depth in some of the conversations we cover today, feel free to check out my Spotify playlist by going to fempower-health slash Spotify. And now let's hear from Kareen. Kareen, it's so nice to have you on the Fem Power Health podcast. I can't believe what was it a few months ago in September that we met at Delphine O'Rourke's office in Times, was it Times Square? Yeah, it was Times Square area. Yeah. Um, what a beautiful space, by the way. And it was great to see you on a panel discussion talking about your expertise in the women's health space. And I actually had Delphine on the podcast right after that to talk about her perspective as an attorney on the impact of overall women's health with the uh, overturning of Roe v. Wade. So that was a really, really interesting discussion. So if anyone wants to hear back on that, certainly we agree that that blew women's health out of the water and the gaps that we have in healthcare. So I'm sure we'll be covering a little bit of um, your experience with that as well today. Um, So before we dive into talking about pelvic floor health, I'd love for you to share your background Um, and how you got to where you are today. And by the way, you're 37 weeks pregnant. So thank you so much for making time. And by the time this episode goes live, you're going to have a cute little bundle of joy. Um, So I can't wait to get the (laughs) updates. Um, But yes, tell us your story. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. And for all the work you do to elevate these really important topics, which, you know, hopefully in the future just become so ubiquitous that we don't even need to talk about it. But today, you know, it's it requires this deep focus. So thank you for for your work. Um, 
So my background has been in healthcare and technology most of my career. I started as a management consultant and then um, have the crazy uh, need to keep building startups over and over again. So um, Origin is the fifth startup I've built and been involved with, uh, the third that's venture-backed and the first in this kind of co-founder CEO role. So um, I like to joke that I enjoy type two fun, you know, the kinds of things like climbing mountains and (laughs) building companies. But it really all cemented for me in 2018. Um, I had spent a lot of my time in digital healthcare <clears throat> at various startups and and had seen you know the shifts of the ecosystem but was also finding myself really disconnected from the end impact of my work um, working in companies that were b2b to b2c and you know I'm like add more acronyms between you know you and the end patient um, and so I decided to take some time off and moved from San Francisco back down to LA where I grew up and was doing a lot of actual work um, physically to deal with some chronic issues. I had swept under the rug for a long time. I have IBD, ulcerative colitis, and I'd also had a history of about 10 years of vulvodynia or painful sex. I was originally diagnosed in my early 20s in New York, and I was going to, you know, Cornell Med, like some of the best medical institutions in the country. And yet they, one, took a very long time to get, you know, even the name of the diagnosis and, you know, probably didn't even get that right in the early days. Um, I had biopsies done, which was really counter to what is the plan of care for this kind of work. And I was never referred to a physical therapist. So, you know, their plan of care was like, try this cream, have a glass of wine, and maybe it'll go away. And, you know. (laughs) Unbelievable. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) We're rolling our eyes over here if you're listening. (laughs) Um, And so... It was one of those moments where I wasn't actually actively trying to, you know, get support for this, but I connected with an old friend who's now one of my co-founders. She had just had her first son and she was experiencing a host of pelvic floor issues, including painful sex, but also incontinence and, you know, discomfort sitting. And, And she was referred to a physical therapist here in LA. And I said, wait, you can go to a PT for your pelvic floor. Like, what does that even mean? And we ended up at the same practice and the cha- the care, excuse me, was life-changing. And in two sessions, I finally, you know, really understood what was going on with my body. I had a plan of care. Most of it was really not invasive, like learn how to breathe properly, <laughs> how to downtrain my pelvic floor and, and actually just reconnect to my body in this very, very powerful way. It was, I say life-changing because it was not only this physical shift and obviously having a positive sex life is really incredible, but also because I finally understood my own anatomy for the first time. Um, and, you know, most women are not taught about, you know, the difference between a vulva and a vagina, you know, ever, uh, especially at young ages. Right. And so that was this beginning journey for me to understand both how important this work is, um, but also how underserved uh, and common these issues are. And so that was really the beginning of our origin story. Um, My friend and I ended up partnering with that local clinic, um, brought in our third co-founder, her husband, and have been partnering with um, really incredible physical therapists across the country to elevate their work and build a network of both in-person clinics, but also virtual care. Wow. That is incredible. What a change the women's health space has been, even in the short time 
that I really got into it after my four-year fertility journey. I mean, just it's exploding. So I'm excited today to, to talk more about pelvic health because it is certainly a popular topic on the podcast. And so for those listening, I do have a Spotify playlist where I just categorize all the topics because there's so many different things that are covered here on the podcast. And, you know, when you and I were aligning, it's like, what can we talk about? Because, you know, as I mentioned, as soon as I met you, I'm like, we have to have an episode together. But what what new things can we cover on the podcast that haven't um, been covered before? And so I love your idea of since, you know, taking off of what you just said, which is we don't understand our bodies, but our bodies change as we age and as we experience things like pregnancy. And I am sure you're a very good pregnant woman and that you're being proactive <laughs> about your pelvic health and doing Trying, all the things. But, still. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, let's let's walk through these different life stages and what women maybe we could talk about what women should expect and what should be monitored because we don't know what we don't know. And because we live with our bodies every day, like here's an example I love to give. So I dated this guy um, in college and we dated for a long time after college as well. And we keep in touch. And many years after we had stopped dating, he's like, remember my nephew? He was like five years old and so quiet and shy. Well, you won't believe it. Apparently he was almost blind and that's why he was shy. But to a kid, he doesn't know or he or she doesn't know what vision is because they're born. And it's like, well, this is just what it is. And through an eye exam with school, they realized he was practically blind. He got glasses and literally transformed into this bubbly young boy. And uh, so I always think about that. And and I want to just put that to light to say like, no, literally, like we think it's normal and then worse because there isn't the data in women's health. And our moms and grandmas and aunts and sisters also think it's normal. We're kind of like in this massive pain is normal, bad is normal, you know, sneezing and peeing is normal. And it's funny. So oh, I got chills as you shared that story. Pelvic health, and I'm sure this is familiar to folks on your podcast if they're, you know, you know, listening before, is really just another way of looking at, you know, a part of your body, right? So we think about back health or breast health or, you know, our mental health. And unfortunately, we just haven't had the language, but also the focus from the medical community to ask the right questions of patients so that, you know, to your point, if there is something that is abnormal, dysfunctional, or painful, um, patients can start to articulate that and, and, you know, build that language themselves. And so, Today, unfortunately, we have to be our own advocates in a different way. And I would say at the highest level, if there's ever pain that folks are experiencing, um, discomfort, you know, things that doesn't that don't feel right intuitively, that is, you know, the beginning of a conversation with a medical provider. And if that provider is not asking you the right questions, you know, time to find someone else. Um, and I'm sharing that because what we have normalized are so many sets of issues. And so let's even just start talking about what happens, you know, in your teenage years. Um, obviously, you know, you start menstruating and you can have really severe cramps um, or what we sometimes see from our patients are things that present as chronic UTIs, but it's actually pelvic floor dysfunction. Um, and so there are some really interesting things you can do where you're maybe not solving 
you know, the root cause, let's say in the menstrual cramp issue, but you can find comfort measures through pelvic floor therapy interventions. Can you tell me more about the chronic UTIs? I have to stop you there because now I'm dying to know because I have so many friends with daughters who talk about this and I actually have done an episode on UTIs and you know, yeah. I'm now curious what you're going to say versus what this MD had to say because she's an OBGYN by training. And as we know, subspecialists are so, so critical in our healthcare system because they know the nuances for someone who has more general training just wouldn't have training on it. I'm not saying she's right or wrong, but I'm just so curious. Yeah. Well, chronic UTIs are, are interesting because sometimes you're not actually getting the culture every time. And so you don't know if there's actually, you know, a bacterial infection, but you can present with symptoms that feel like a UTI, but if they're happening more regularly and you're not getting the set of positive you know, infection data back, there could actually be pelvic floor spasm or muscular issues that are creating the feelings that are often associated with a UTI. Chronic UTIs can have a similar pain cycle to what happens with painful sex, where maybe there's an initial trigger that, you know, it's an infection, it's a, um, a trauma, you know, something that creates that initial painful penetration but then your muscles and your brain create this pain response cycle where you're actually developing pain preventatively in advance of penetration. Um, and so, you know, pain is often in this brain body connection, which we obviously know a lot more about today than we ever did in the past. And with chronic UTIs, you know, there's not a ton of research. And so I don't want to, you know, speak out of turn from a clinical standpoint, but oftentimes the symptoms of what someone thinks is a UTI is actually pelvic floor dysfunction or muscle spasm. Um, and so if you are someone or your daughter or anyone in your life has been having, you know, series of antibiotics again and again and again, and it's not working, um, you know, that's a point where you could actually think about like, let me go check out the musculoskeletal system and see if there's anything else happening here where I'm creating that spasm or that tension. UTIs, it's black and white in that you get the culture and if it comes back positive, it's a UTI. If it's negative, it's not. So yeah. what I'm now unclear on, and I just think this is important <laughs> for people to understand because why can't we just all say, can I get the, the, culture? the culture? Yeah. And, you know, I don't know enough about what's happening today with like, you know, online pharmacies, over-the-counter medicine, but I, I do know even in my own experience, I've been able to get UTI medication without going in to get the culture. And, and it's not necessarily, you know, I've wanted that. And so I don't want to put that back on the medical community. Um, we shouldn't necessarily have barriers to getting that kind of medication, but if it's happening really regularly, that's when you really want to make sure you're getting the culture on our blog too. We have a lot of resources. So if you're you know experiencing any of these things, obviously you can read more. It's all clinically informed and obviously talk to a medical professional too. And I should note, I'm not a PT, so I am, you know, a highly informed, slightly dangerous uh, business person who cares a lot about these issues. Also what we see, you know, in teenage years, um, you know, there, there could be menopause pain. It's not, excuse me, not menopause, menstrual pain, chronic UTIs, uh, incontinence can often start with young athletes. So with gymnasts, with runners, um, who have really high impact training, but are not necessarily getting full body training around pelvic floor, um, you can start to see incontinence develop at that age. And it can be really challenging and embarrassing as a young teen to be leaking, you know, during your races, um, even fecal incontinence too. And so that's something that's very 
I don't want to say very common, but increasingly common among, you know, young athletes who are not getting that whole body training and are starting to, um, you know, leak at the end of a race, for example. Um, and so that's a really important opportunity to say, okay, this is not normal. How do I get that kind of care? Um, and then there are all the issues that could present, you know, depending on you know your age and when these uh, diagnoses could happen, but PCOS, endometriosis, um, kind of earlier um, presentations of, of things that will become chronic pelvic pain that, again, are not fully addressed by physical therapy, but you really want to make sure you're supporting yourself with some of the pain management and musculoskeletal interventions, you know, from that early age. Wow. And so, yeah, it's basically right. It's a body part, right? Like it's your back or your legs. There are so many different things that can impact this set of of muscles and this whole system. And so we often think about pelvic floor therapy as great. Like, let me do my kegels after I have a baby. So I don't pee my pants. Um, But it's really so much more than that. Um, and also, you know, tied to orgasm and pleasure as well. And oftentimes we think about uh, Kegels and I, you know, I joke and I love Kegels because it's just, it's how we've normalized and talk about this issue. But sometimes if you have a, a hypotonic pelvic floor, so a tight pelvic floor, which is very present in painful sex. So in my case, if you can't lengthen your muscles and release, you actually are maybe not able to have the full spectrum of orgasm. Um, because the orgasm is basically the full contraction and release uh, as well. And so this is not just about pain management, but it's also about pleasure, which, you know, I know is hard for the medical community to wrap their head around, but, you know, it's really critical. And and I've had a lot of friends who have had trouble orgasming who also then, you know, have some of these other symptoms at the same time. And um, it's just not something that we are taught, you know, about. And obviously there's a lot of lack of dialogue around pleasure in general for women. How do we know what the ideal orgasm is? Well, I don't I don't want anyone to feel like there's an ideal, but and yeah. I'm not getting at that, but it's more <laughs> of like, wow, if I can have more, I'd probably want more. Like, so have I reached the possibility of where I can yeah. be if I had a healthy pelvic floor? <laughs> exactly. Well, and I think it's more if you if someone has felt like, hey, I I'm watching these movies and obviously movies are not the best (laughs) way to see what an orgasm looks like. But (laughs) I talk to my friends or, you know, I I feel like I'm not having that full experience or I'm not enjoying myself or I I can't relax. Like, you know, I think a lot of the times, um, especially I joke about like people living, you know, I was living in New York. And so, you know, you're, you're very (laughs) tense all the time. If, if the relaxation techniques and, kind of relaxing your body are not as intuitive to you, um, that might be an early indication. Um, and so something to just to think about is also, you know, what kind of warm up are you having or, you know, earlier things are you doing with your partner to get into that state so that your pelvic floor can both fully contract, but then also fully relax. I think that will be yeah. motivating for people to get a healthy pelvic floor. And since you were talking about the kegels, tell us about misperceptions there, and then we'll dive into other phases of life. Because I I do think people oversimplify, and I think on every single episode, Mm -hmm. we do talk about this. So apologies if you're listening to all the episodes, we cannot underestimate the lack of understanding around kegels. So share your thoughts, please. Well, I would love to hear, and I'll listen back to hear everyone else's thoughts too. But you know, at the highest level, kegels are a shorthand um, for thinking about pelvic floor strength right? And it's the contraction in the context of, as we were just talking about, orgasm, uh, painful sex, 
um, you know, even other aspects of just healthy function of muscles, you want to both contract and you want to be able to lengthen and release. And oftentimes, actually, patients who are having pelvic floor dysfunction should not be doing Kegels because you're you're overactivating an active pelvic floor that's in a hyper state of tension. It's as if my shoulders are always up and I'm now doing really heavy shoulder exercises and I never let my shoulders learn how to relax um, when I should actually be doing you know more stretching and more opening. Ooh, that's a great depiction. I love that. I'm glad I asked the question. <laughs> yeah. Or even, you know, like the connection between the jaw, the hips and the pelvic floor are also really connected. So if you have a tight jaw, you're not going to want to do these, not that we do jaw exercises, but it's not like you want to be chewing like really hard all the time. You want to learn how to relax your jaw in the same way that you'd want to learn how to relax your pelvic floor. Um, at different stages of life, strength and, you know, release are more important. So actually we'll talk about, you know, menopause in a little bit that's when your muscles may start to weaken. So you need to be thinking more actively about strengthening, but not at the expense of length and release and relaxation. And so our clinical team often likes to say the most important pelvic floor exercise is not the Kegel. It's actually the diaphragmatic breath. It's how do you learn how to release and to let go? Um, Because then from there, you can build strength afterwards. Okay. Oh, I love that. So now let's go on to the next phase. So, um, you know, not everyone is going through pregnancy, but for those folks who do, um, that's a probably the easiest and most common entry path into understanding your pelvic floor because there's no way around it. Um, even if you're delivering via cesarean, um, there's a lot of pelvic floor, both strength and impact that can happen there. Um, what you know, I'm experiencing right now at 37 weeks pregnant is a lot of pressure on my pelvic floor, um, you know, from the weight of the baby. And so both strength um, and having a strong pelvic floor, um, strong supporting muscles around the pelvic floor. So I'm able to actually carry the weight of the child without having, you know, massive hip pain or pelvic girdle pain is really critical. Um, But then I think the introduction most folks get is afterwards, right? So if you're delivering vaginally, Common things that can happen could be painful sex, um, often related to tearing or episiotomy, um, incontinence because of all the pressure that was on the pelvic floor, and then the lack of muscle, uh, you know, activation that you're able to have after giving birth, and prolapse, um, which is all of these are incredibly common. You know, incontinence impacts one in three adult women, prolapse impacts one in four adult women. These issues. If you, you know, don't get to address them earlier, will persist with you through later stages of life and can often get worse. Um, and so that's why there's been such a focus on the pelvic floor in birth rehab. And, uh, you know, this postpartum in France, they call it the pelvic floor reeducation. Ooh, I like uh, that. Yeah. Um, so that you're able to, you know, regain function um, quickly while your muscles still have that elasticity at younger points in your life. Okay. And so I would like to bring up the C-section piece because I wonder how much of a misperception or lack of understanding there is around C-section and even doing that can impact your pelvic floor because I'm imagining, let's say I'm a woman and I know that pelvic floor health is really important and I want to be proactive. Some experts have said, even when you're planning to get pregnant, you should visit a pelvic floor PT, even one visit. So they can assess your body or maybe it was even right before giving birth to 
you know, help you understand like the best delivery positions and things like that. But I'm not sure how many people would think about being proactive or having those follow-ups if they've had a C-section or plan for a C-section, because it's like, well, nothing's going through my vaginal canal, so I'm good to go. And it sounds like that's not the case. Yeah. Well, maybe let's myth bust two things. One is the C-section impact, but also what is what is the work of a pelvic floor therapist? Um, you know, if you're working with a really strong pelvic floor PT, they're going to actually evaluate your whole body because really a lot of pelvic floor dysfunction can present as back pain. Um, you know, in the context of C-section, there's a lot of physical recovery that's required to make sure that you heal fully. Um, and, you know, unfortunately it's a massive surgery that you leave the hospital with and maybe you get a piece of paper if that. Um, and so I think the the idea would be both preventatively, but also so you have a baseline and you know where you're at, but then postpartum, however you deliver, you are able to understand, you know, what are my weaknesses? How can I regain strength safely? How can I get back to normal function and exercise um, and movement? And sometimes that movement might literally just be picking up, you know, the child, but can be exacerbated if you're already having some, some weakness or dysfunction. In the context of C-section, you know, you can see patients present with incontinence or prolapse after C-section. Um, and that's because of, you know, either the pressure that was given. Sometimes if you have an unplanned C-section, you're still also laboring for a period of time. Um, and there's many different reasons why that can happen. Um, but I would even say reason number one outside of the pelvic floor issue is more you've just had a massive surgery, um, an abdominal surgery that's, you know, connected to your whole body and your pelvic organs too. And so let's make sure that you're getting that right recovery for you based on whatever is going on in your body. Okay. That makes sense. Thank you so much for sharing that. And then what are your perspectives about that proactive visit so that you're prepared for, for the pregnancy and, and the birth, regardless of vaginal canal delivery or C-section? I mean, I'm biased, but I've been in PT since about week 20 right now. Um, I started because I was having some hip pain and, you know, if you have hip pain or hip instability, which I'm now experiencing getting worse, obviously towards the end, you know, with the amount of relaxing in your joints, it's really critical to actually learn some of those stabilizing and strengthening actions. And so PT for me earlier on was, was really around strength and kind of pain management. Um, usually in the third trimester is when you'll start to do labor and delivery prep. Um, which includes what you were describing. So best positions for labor and delivery, whether or not you're having, you know, an epidural. So even with pain management, there are things you can do to reduce your risk of tearing or episiotomy, which obviously has some implications for your recovery. Um, and the other big thing that I'm working on is perineal massage, which I hate that phrase because it's not a massage, it's, it's stretching, it's, you know, pretty uncomfortable, um, but it's a way to help prepare your pelvic floor for, um, you know, the pushing phase and the stretching that happens. And again, around kind of the tearing potential, okay. but ultimately to what I find a lot of value in for our patients who are maybe hearing about these issues, but there's a lot of fear around like what could happen postpartum is really starting to also prepare for what could happen. So that way, if you're at home three days, three weeks, three months later, and you're like, oh, I'm leaking or I'm having this heaviness feeling, um, you know, you only get that six week visit, the 15 minutes with your provider. And so you're able to be an advocate for yourself um, in a much more proactive way. 
And I hope that in the same way we do screening for postpartum depression or even, you know, depression and pregnancy, we can improve the screening for some of these issues later on. Um, But just understanding what could happen, I think, can be very empowering for a lot of our patients. Is there anything between pregnancy and perimenopause that I may not be thinking of that we should cover? Or is that really the next big stage of life changes? You know, I would say things that could present earlier in life could also present later. So the things we talked about, you know, incontinence from being a high performance athlete or um, endometriosis, PCOS, you know, folks are getting diagnosed really at various stages of life. Um, And so it does it could be related to maternity, but it could also be related to, you know, just other things presenting. And so the the time in which it hits you necessarily is not as, um, you know, important as just making sure that if you feel like things have shifted or are not right, or, you know, you know, or not um, in the way that you want to be moving your body or feeling good in your body, that would be a good time to check back in. Now you're bringing up PCOS and endometriosis. Are you saying that there's data showing if you have those conditions, there's a higher likelihood of having pelvic floor issues? Well, there's often pelvic floor pain associated with those issues, um, not all the time. And so it's part of the spectrum of symptoms that you could be experiencing. And so we treat a lot of patients with PCOS, endo, um, chronic pelvic pain that could be related to those, but also, you know, lack of root cause understanding. Um, And so, you know, pelvic pain because of the lack of research is just, it's just not well understood what is triggering that. And even endometriosis, as we know, is so underdiagnosed for so long. Um, Fibroids too could be related to pelvic pain. So there's lots of reasons why someone could be having pain, um, both internally, but also, you know, in the entire pelvic region and kind of your hips and your low back. And that, that would be a reason why you might want to get support. Before we get into menopause, I, I think uh, yeah. just based on what you shared, I did want to bring up this point as well, is around being proactive early. Because yeah. like one of the things I've seen in women's health and so many of us who've um, started companies in this space, it's hard because we're so deep in it and we know so much information. It's like, why aren't more women proactive? Why do doctors not know this information? And I have found the consistency is that fertility issues and pregnancy are when women suddenly have this, I need to know about my body. And now with so much in the media, et cetera, about menopause, I think women are so frustrated because they're realizing there's not enough information. So now I think menopause has fallen into that yeah. you know, category. So those seem to be the big buckets and the gap that is really there, which I think with technology, social media, et cetera, coming into play, the younger generation that continues to come um, of age will know to be proactive at the younger ages, but we're still dealing with older folks who don't know the information being the parent slash doctor. You know, I, I think it's important before we get into menopause about don't wait so whatever age you are, the, the theme is probably don't wait to get help because what I'm also hearing from other topics I cover with experts, especially Dr. Jerry Lynn Pryor out of Canada. Oh my God, she's incredible. She's been doing women's health for over 40 years and definitely thinks differently. And she talks so much about things we do or don't do in our adolescence and how it actually impacts menopause and pregnancy and other things, bone health, you name it. 
So, so talk to us about, you know, what you've seen, and I know your company is young, but the data I'm sure you're gathering um, centrally in your databases and the research that you're doing, you definitely have a perspective on the be proactive and what that means for the different phases of life. Yeah, it's such an important point in question, and I'm hopeful that it's also shifting for younger generations, especially in the context of period pain. I think that's where social media is really taking off, and you're seeing also a lot of folks talk about PMDD and you know the emotional aspects of um, menstruation, which unlocks the beginning of this conversation. And so it feels like we're shifting. Um, this is making me think... When I was younger, I never did any upper body strength exercises and I was always running. And I thought exercise for women was basically cardio. And at one point, um, you know, in my mid twenties, my now husband was like watching me struggle, lift myself up off on a ledge and I couldn't do it. And he's like, wait, you really can't lift yourself up. And so he got me weights for my birthday. And I was like, that's really rude. You know, <laughs> I cannot believe you got me a set of weights, but I forgave him for that moment, but I, I actually am really grateful because it shifted my perspective of, of strength and, you know, what women need at, at different points. And obviously today, I think the concept of women just, you know, doing cardio for exercises, you know, in the past, but we're in a similar kind of shift, you know, in the way that fitness has shifted for women, um, you know, so is this concept. I'm I'm torn, though, on the proactive message because I also don't want anyone to feel like it's too late. Um, because there is never a too late. Many people wait to deal with health issues, various kinds, you know, until it's at the point of pain. And so if you're at that point, like it's not too late, there is a path to recovery. You know, I had painful sex for way too long and I'm fine now. And I, you know, have a really great sex life. And it's, there's not like this termination date by which point, you know, you have to have a surgery. Obviously some folks might pressure you to, to do that. But the proactive benefits are there in that this is a musculoskeletal system. And the earlier we can both strengthen our muscles, learn how to lengthen, but also develop that mind-body connection, that I think is really core. And I'm a big believer in how we rewire our brain's connection to our body, Um, you know, with both my experience with painful sex and with, you know, chronic GI issues, there's such a deep connection. And so much of my recovery for painful sex was rewiring you know, when I was perceiving pain before I was perceiving pain, how do I like learn to breathe so that I'm actually not triggering pain. And so I just think that the earlier we can connect to our bodies and understand our own anatomy, the sometimes easier the recovery will be, but it doesn't mean that it is not there if you have not had that experience earlier in life. Do you know how many friends I've spoken to have said that they're in their like mid forties and have never gotten a mammogram because they don't have time to go to the doctor? This is not unique to women's health issues. I think we're just, you know, obviously I know too much. And so I definitely encourage my friends to to intervene sooner. But even some folks on our team, right, have been having some issues that they are not coming in for. And I was talking to someone last week about it. And um, there's also fear, right? Like this idea that it's a very intimate or it can be perceived to be an intimate uh, intervention, um, you know, so to to break a myth. You don't have to necessarily have an internal exam to have pelvic floor therapy with virtual care. You're not, you know, putting the computer down there. So there's ways that you can get support and information um, without having to 
be uncomfortable on day one, um, which I think is really critical given what we know about trauma and sexual trauma among women. And, you know, sometimes that could be a big barrier for folks. So I have a couple questions around like if PT doesn't work and all that stuff, but I want to get to that at the end because I do want to get to menopause and we can conclude on that part. So talk to us about what we should expect in menopause. And by the way, I um, I want to announce, and by the time this episode goes live, I'll be a few months in, I am officially in menopause, or I should say post-menopause because menopause is one day, but I have reached yeah. it and I am feeling fine and happy um, great. And, uh, <laughs> yay. So bring out the candle. <laughs> Amazing. Well, <mazel> <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So, so talk to us about this phase of life. And by the way, just to clarify for those who haven't listened to the menopause series, um, we talk about perimenopause menopause, which is one day and postmenopause. Mm-hmm. And so I, I say this cause a lot of my friends will be like, gosh, I'm getting all these migraines all of a sudden and the hot flashes and but some of it, like we know, is is perimenopause and menopause, but some don't. So take a listen to that to better understand the phases. But um, here, let's just cover from the the pelvic floor um, or the pelvic health uh, aspect. Definitely. Well, you know, you were already joking about hot flashes and migraines, and so I think the understanding of the constellation of of symptoms that you could experience in perimenopause, um, you know, or throughout and post, um, are really variable by person. Um, But sometimes what can happen is, um, particularly with the pelvic floor, you can experience vaginal dryness um, at a higher rate, which can create, you know, especially painful sex or other tension. You can have vaginal atrophy where your muscles weaken, like atrophy is, you know, used to describe any part of your muscles weakening, um, but it can happen to your pelvic floor. And so if you maybe used to be someone who leaked a little, and I'm using quotes, uh, when they, you know, sneezed or ran, um, that issue can get worse. Or if you've had maybe a stage one prolapse that you haven't had time or were not aware of um, and did not address, that could get exacerbated as your muscles and your strength changes. And so when we think about how pelvic floor therapy can support in menopause, Um, it's really a lot of the same issues that you could be experiencing at earlier or later stages in life, but in the context of what else is happening, um, which could also, you know, include these hormonal changes that make sometimes the recovery process feel more exacerbated. Um, so the plan of care is often quite similar to what you'd be doing, you know, for incontinence earlier, but in partnership with other providers or, you know, depending on what you're experiencing to make sure you're getting that whole 360 support. Yep. Awesome. And I actually did in some of the um, menopause related episodes, they talk a lot about like um, some of the creams and things you can use and some of the brands, obviously, if you're putting anything internal, just making sure you're cognizant of the ingredients and whatnot. So it's, it's, it seems like it's, it's because the hormones have changed so significantly that, um, also taking into account not just the pelvic floor PT, but some of the other support that you can have to aid in what happens with this change of life, right? Yeah. And there's various different types of providers, but also types of interventions. And so unfortunately today, you know, I think there's still a bit of trial and error of what's going to work for you, but that's true at any point in life with, you know, what goes on with our bodies. Um, But I do want to give a shout out to lube, (laughs) various kinds of lube, you know, for, Anything you're using, whether it's for using a dilator because you're, you know, struggling with painful sex, but also for penetration, um, you know, a lot of folks who, I think, have a misperception that 
and especially, you know, I've heard from some patients of ours that their partners think lube means that, you know, they're failing as partners. And it's really, you know, a, an amazing part of a toolkit to both have more pleasure, but also protect, you know, and enjoy, you know, whatever is going on. My understanding also in, in the discussions we've had is there's lube and then there's moisturizer. And so you can use both for helping with some of the, the symptoms as well. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. So the pelvic, so I, what I would look at this as, if I'm hearing this correctly, is having pelvic floor health outside of using like the lube and the moisturizer, it can be around helping with strengthening the muscles in the proper way. And a pelvic floor PT can certainly assist with mm -hmm. that. Um, and by the way, for those who can't afford or um, pelvic floor PT, but also are interested in being able to do at home devices, besides the telehealth, um, I know there are some things that you can order um, at home to use to help with the pelvic floor strengthening device. And actually, I interviewed Dr. Allison Shrikande because I called her up. She was a guest on season one. And I said, I am so overwhelmed by all this at home stuff. And, I, and I'm like interviewing you guys all day long. I can't imagine the consumers who are going on Amazon and are like, what in the world is all this stuff? And so I actually interviewed her to go through all the different devices um, the funniest one I have to say, I don't know if you've seen this is it's like the thigh master. So if you Google on Amazon, pelvic floor, pelvic floor device or whatever that comes on. And I'm like, I'm not even a doctor. And I know that that just cannot be good in any way, shape or form. And she did validate that. So if you're curious about that thigh master that comes up in your search, um, the answer is no. <laughs> that was the only thing she was like, ixnay on that one. But the other, she did give her perspective. So if anyone's looking for that insight, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> no, and look, I am a big fan of any innovation in our space because it's so critical. And, you know, we need to have a whole spectrum of options. The one piece of advice or caution I would give, you know, a friend is to make sure that it's, it's right for you. So in the context of what we said about Kegels, right? Like you could be buying an incontinence device, that, you know, is stimulating Kegel training. But if you have a hypotonic or, you know, tight pelvic floor, you might not want to do that first. Um, and so if you don't have access to a pelvic floor therapist, even talking to an OB or just trying to get a baseline to make sure that what you're doing is safe and will not exacerbate your issue, I think is critical um, because they're not, these devices also aren't that cheap, you know? And so I want to make sure your, your money is going to get. Yeah, this. no, you're right. And she said that too. She says, ideally you should visit a pelvic floor PT at the very least one time. If you truly can't afford it, like that is the minimum because you don't want to make a mistake and make things worse because that's honestly more expensive in the long run. So, so I completely yeah, agree. Agreed. Yeah. So speaking about the cost, talk to us about like, OBGYNs can't know everything. They pretty much know general women's health. And if they specialize in a certain area, go get a fellowship, you know, great. They have more detailed yeah. training in a certain area. But then going to specialists because of the way reimbursement works, thank you, you know, capitalistic society of healthcare, you know, it's it's expensive. I guess I'm curious if you guys are addressing it, if you have thoughts on how it can be addressed, what yeah. women should be aware of. I just think it's an important conversation um, to have because I don't want to let it slide. If anyone's listening, like, yeah, thanks for the advice. I can't afford it. What do I do now? No, I think that's a really critical point. And there's also an access problem because, you know, there's about 40 million women with pelvic floor issues in the U.S. and only about 5,000 providers. And so, you know, and most of those, about 80% don't take insurance. 
Um, what we've done from day one is actually partnered with insurance companies. And so our care in person is all in network. Um, we are contracted with the largest commercial payers, you know, from Optum and Cigna um, to the Blues. And it was really critical for us because of this issue um, where, you know, I don't want someone to just get one appointment. I would love for them to have a full plan of care, whether that's, you know, three, six, nine, whatever they need appointments. Um, and so our average out of pocket for patients is $30, which is obviously still, you know, too high for some folks, but at least is, you know, much more palatable than the two to 300 you might be paying in, you know, New York City for an out of network provider. I'd say the telehealth landscape, we're still able to get reimbursed in certain markets. Um, there's some questions around what that's going to look like. And so we're really advocating. And there's actually some really important legislation right now that's sitting in Congress that I hope is going to get reintroduced in the new year around pelvic floor therapy being covered by Medicaid. Um, because especially when you're talking about birth, um, you know, so many patients are on Medicaid and right now coverage is very, very limited for pelvic floor therapy. And so this could be a game changer in the way that, you know, doula coverage or lactation coverage has been shifting in the last few years. And so I'm hopeful it's still, I think there's a perception that this is niche or a nice to have. And, you know, if any policymakers are listening, it's not, it's a must have, it's part of, you know, our core health. Um, and in the way that PT is used to prevent so many other surgeries, you know, in other contexts, you know, we're seeing, especially in, in older age, one of the number one reasons uh, women end up in assisted living is incontinence and the, the risk of falling later <sighs> on in life. And this can be treated, right, with pelvic floor therapy. One of the things that I'm really passionate about is really starting to centralize all of this valuable information because it's kind of like if you don't know what's out there, don't know where to look. Yeah. you're probably not going to find it. And I know that like, for example, the, uh, for menopause, there's NOMS, there's Ishwish for sexual health, obviously ACOG for, um, general OBGYN. Yeah. Is there a group like that for pelvic health that's helping lobbying Congress or is it left up to these femtech companies and <laughs> pelvic floor PTs who are already so busy trying to help educate Congress? Like what's going on there? So there's the APTA, the American Physical Therapy Association, has a section on pelvic health, and they're doing some great work. Um, there's also an organization called Herman and Wallace, which is one of the larger training and educational organizations for helping folks specialize. You know, I guess from Origin's perspective, I've always been a big believer, too, in the power of brand and the power of, you know, activating consumers. And so we're, you know, a small company, but have quickly become the largest player, you know, in pelvic health uh, PT across the country just in the last few years. And so we're really trying to use our platform too to help elevate these issues really one patient at a time, because what we see too is once you go through this, especially if you've been suffering in silence for so long, you're about to start shouting from the rooftop. So how can we think about, you know, all of these patients who've been, you know, shifting their own body identity, their perceptions of self, and how do we build that community to rise many more boats? Let's talk about surgery. So I know that your specialty is not surgery, but let's face it, there will be cases where a woman needs surgery. And so I know we're not here to talk about who needs it, how to get diagnosed, et cetera, but just any comments from the lens that you have around those who may need to get surgery? 
Yeah. Um, if you are getting recommended surgery and you haven't had the option to try non-invasive options before, whether that's PT or other modalities that are appropriate, I would always push back and ask for that first and, you know, have the conversation with your provider. Um, but if it is needed and that's often needed in, you know, uh, more complex stages of prolapse, um, you know, chronic incontinence, things like that, that, you know, ha- are, are resistant to PT and other interventions. Um, one, making sure you have a provider you trust, but that also you ideally have a PT to support you in your recovery. Um, because the data shows that having physical therapy as part of your recovery from surgery, particularly prolapse surgery, can improve your outcomes of not needing further surgeries later on to kind of the repeat procedures. And so that's something to think about, which is not just what is this acute intervention going to look like, but how do I make sure that this lasts for me? So um, wonderful. So any, anything we missed? If you're experiencing any of these issues again, like no shame, don't feel bad about it. You've probably been, you know, part of a massive system, you know, especially providers who are not asking questions that help you understand yourself to the first step is really just understanding your own anatomy. I think there's so much power of, of education as a healthcare intervention. And that's why virtual care is so effective because at the end of the day, you don't necessarily need manual therapy to recover. Sometimes it's actually, you know, understanding your own anatomy, strength and exercise, you know, from the comfort of your own home. And then, Finally, um, if you find providers that are not working for you, you know, this is a relationship at the end of the day, um, whether it's with Origin or someone else. And so don't feel like if it doesn't work once, it's not going to work. And so just making sure that you're your own advocate. Anything that you wanted to share that maybe you didn't cover today, because I think the work that you're doing is so important. Um, So just in case there were any looming uh, points that you wanted to make. Well, maybe just in a nutshell, and thank you. Um, Origin is the leading provider of pelvic floor therapy and full body PT. And we specialize in supporting women through every stage of life um, from you know sexual health in your teens and 20s through maternity and menopause. Um, we are focused on treating folks with vaginal anatomy. So that could also include individuals going through transition too. Um, and in some of our clinics, we're able to support more broadly. And, you know, ultimately our mission is to change the standard of care. So this becomes far more normalized and covered by insurance and accessible. And, you know, pelvic floor dysfunction is as common, if not more common than seasonal allergies. And so we need to uh, have a lot of work to get this, you know, increase access to this care. Absolutely. And then would people just go to your website and they'd be able to select a location or basically select what they need to be able to get the care that they Exactly. So the website's theoriginway.com and we have both in-person care, but also virtual care, um, which is great. Well, thank you for doing what you're doing. And um, it's really great to see the evolution and it's um, heartening to see how quickly you've grown because I think it shows the need, but also that people are really catching on that this is something that should be supported. And so thank you for, for leading that way. And um, all the best with the new baby. Thank you. <laughs> thank you so much. Yeah, we'll see. You know, it's funny. If it makes anyone feel better, I feel like I'm so not the poster child right now. And I'm like, I'm not doing my stretching. I mean, you know, all the things. But, you know, life life is life. And so we've got to be kind to ourselves. And um, thank you for all the work you do to amplify these really important topics. Oh, thank you so much.